Well, I've asked our good friend, Dr. Frank Buckley, back on Church and Culture for a very specific reason, and that is because he's writing a book on the origins of liberty. But before we get into that with him, let me remind you that he is a foundation professor at the Scalia School of Law at George Mason, and has been since 1989. He's appeared on all the major television news and talk shows. He writes for the New York Post, has written for the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and so forth. He's been on this show every time he's written a book for the last, I don't know, five, six years. Most recently, he was on our show discussing his book that came out in the middle of 2022, Progressive Conservatism, How Republicans Will Become America's Natural Governing Party. Frank Buckley, welcome back to Church and Culture. I hope you're feeling well. I am indeed. Dale, it's great to talk to you. So did I get it right that your book, the one you're writing, is on the origins of liberty? Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion about that. I think there are a number of uh, people on both the right and the left who are anti-liberals, and I want to deep down into an earlier idea of what liberalism means, and which is wholly benign. And, and, and I think that's been forgotten, and, and I think bringing back those older meanings of liberalism will have a lot to do to in you know getting new inspiring new vigor behind the liberalism and responding to the anti-liberals amongst us yeah and you know uh i when i was growing up i was taught by old-time liberals who i differed with in, in college and graduate school but who respected differences of opinion, and we had great arguments. In fact, one of my very best friend for many years was a, was a liberal, and uh, we, we would laugh and have fun talking about our differences, both religious, political, moral, or all the whole scale. Well, in fact, those differences at the time weren't really very fundamental, and the old liberals you describe today would be called conservatives. So the but the origins of liberalism that this is a different kind of uh, view than if we were to talk about the origins of freedom. Could you explain that difference, basically? Uh, well, there are three words that are connected to one another: liberalism, liberty, and freedom. So maybe we might talk about that a little bit to clear up the air a little bit. Liberty and freedom are usually thought to be synonymous or closely related to meaning, but, but they have different connotations. Um, liberty, more than anything, refers to the individual's relationship to the state, whereas freedom has a, has a broader meaning and connects to other things. Um, you're unfree if you're fettered, uh, illegally in chains. You're not at liberty at that point either. You're, but freedom also refers to constraints that have nothing to do with the state. Um, for example, people in straightened economic conditions might be said to be less than free because they're starving and, 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 and you know, have no access to any of the kinds of things we'd, we'd want in the world. So, Freedom can refer to the, the range of alternatives available to us, whereas liberty is independent of whatever the alternatives are and only talks to the kinds of restraints put upon us by the state. There's another sense of freedom that's more connected to ideas of personal morality. Um, you know, there, there's a, a free will debate, for example. Are, are, are we free to make our own moral choices, in which case we're responsible for them, or are we determined by psychological, economic, cultural factors so we really have no choice in the matter? So, uh, you know, the, the moralist would say, my domain is freedom. I mean, I'm talking about moral choices made by free people. 
and if uh, if it, if and that's quite independent of the word liberty. So when Patrick Henry said, "Give me liberty or give me death," he was talking about his relation to the England, to King George, and right. to the uh, their the authority they were trying to. Uh, uh, use aggrievously uh, against the colonists. Right. Well, uh, you know, if that, any event was overdetermined, it was the American Revolution. So many were the reasons for it. But one of them was the habit of Britain sending over imperial popinjays to rule us, uh, like Lord Dunmore in Virginia. And the Virginian sensibly said, uh, you know, we, we've been governing ourselves effectively for a long time. We don't need Britain anymore. And and so we should be at liberty from the constraints of, of the Board of Trade in Westminster. But well, you know, and, freedom, and so... Freedom and liberty were used interchangeably by the founders. Yeah, but they were definitely interested <laughs> in defining the limits of a overarching government to the rights, correct, of the individual yeah. citizen. Right. Yeah. So when uh, did that discipline dis- its hand? But when did that idea that the uh, individual citizen has r- rights uh, a, in terms of government authority, of whatever kind of government, where did that come from? Well, um, lawyers might be guilty of this. Um, we are seeing problems in terms of, forgive me, my, my serious just woke up just now. Uh, you know, lawyers concern themselves with the relationship between the individual and the state and therefore are more concerned with the idea of, of liberty and, and moral notions of freedom they'll assign to a different sort of person. Like like priest, um, you know, and, and that distinction is proper. But um, I think today there's a tendency to diminish the role of moral freedom, and to, uh, particularly on the left, and to see morality solely in terms of man's relationship to the state. In other words, the state is to right. govern us. And, uh, and, and, you know, people on the left will tend to think that's a good thing. There, there's a natural division in society at this point. In a way, it almost transcends left versus right, although the overlap is, is huge, right? It's, it's, it's the people who feel that the state too much interferes in our choices as with respect to, uh, you know, COVID vaccines and the like and, you know, the shutdown of, of, of of classrooms and the like. Um, some people by nature seem to welcome that. People particularly on the left and people particularly on the right say, now wait a minute, I mean, you're, you're really interfering with my liberty here. The state is intervening too much. So we're, we're at a, a moment which in fact resembles 1776. It really does, doesn't it, Frank? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like a, it's like we need a new Patrick Henry. Well, or a new Samuel Adams. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, he uh, he's he was sort of, I think, what, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. He was sort of, in a way, the Patrick Henry of of Massachusetts in the sense that he was the firebrand and he uh, made sure he he was not going to allow. Uh, the representative of Great Britain to tax everything, and, you know, and to the so-called stamp tax wasn't going to let it happen. Indeed, yes. Although you're getting my dander up because I'm a Virginian, and we <laughs> always resentful of Massachusetts. You know. <laughs> well, you know, they started out Puritan and ended up Catholic, so they can't be all bad, right? Pardon me? Yeah. They started out Puritan and ended up Catholic. That's right, yeah. Um, uh, amusingly, I, I used to crunch numbers and 
one of the things I wanted to do in, in econometric work was measure a Catholic variable. I mean, how important was Catholicism in terms of whatever outcome I was looking at, divorce or whatever, right? And, and so I was looking for the percentage of Catholics in Massachusetts, and uh, you know, and the point is you can't find those numbers easily. So I turned to our Sunday visitor, but I gave up on that when our Sunday visitor reported that the number of Catholics in Massachusetts exceeded the number of people in Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's a it's big there, but not quite that big. What about this? Wouldn't some people, if you were to ask this question, immediately answer Magna Carta about liberty and freedom? Yeah, where did the notion of personal liberty arose? Well, personal liberty is part of Magna Carta, although it's mostly about the relationship between really an aristocratic class and the king. So it's it's really about ideas of governance. You know, if you wanted to create a constitution, you might start with looking at Magna Carta, but there are two fundamentally different ways of looking at constitution-making. One way would emphasize virtue, and the other way would emphasize constitutional machinery. So, the, you know, the virtue angle, and people are increasingly talking about the need for virtue in government, the virtue angle goes back to people like Machiavelli, and in 1776, we had very much what was called a Machiavellian moment, where people said, you know, the problem is the government of England is, 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 is utterly corrupt, and, 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 we, and that's because they're a monarchy, and, and virtue flourishes only in republics, therefore we will have separation from England and the creation of a virtuous republic. There was a lot of that thinking in 1776, uh, inspired importantly by the uh, by the ministers, the priests of the time. Um, the other way of looking at this is to say virtue is impossible because we're all naturally corrupt and self-interested, and therefore the point is to get the constitutional machinery right. And importantly, that's the difference between 1776 when we had our revolution. And 1787, when we created our Constitution, because as, as explained by Madison, the Constitution is, is a machine made for naturally self-interested, i.e. not very virtuous people. So there are these two different ways of doing, uh, of doing it all. And That's really interesting, tended, Frank. Very, we, we've, tended, yeah. we've tended to look only at getting the machinery right, and so we've not, I think, paid enough attention to the need for individual virtue. And, uh, you, know, and uh, you know, and you know, you can ask, well, great, what do you do to promote virtue? Um, but that question, had it been posed 60 years ago, people would have answered very differently from today. People would have said, well, you know, you need schools that, that teach reverence for the founders and inspire virtuous thoughts where we have, for example, readings about, you know, the old, the old readings they used to have in, in schools, uh, you know. Yeah, the he, no, heroes, heroes like heroes George Washington. And, yeah, and, yeah, supposedly and that was going to... all of that, you know, the idea is there's no such thing as virtue. Everybody in the past was an utterly vicious person, uh, uh, and that that's destructive not only of our sense of nationhood of Americanism, but but also of a sense of virtue. Well, you know, it it's very clear though if you take out the word virtue and and replace it with just education, general education, no. then people may understand more readily why the founders pushed virtue because education is part of that. Yeah, well, well, and, you know, the, the thing about woke education is how devoid of intelligence it is. If, if your idea of a good society can be expressed in one sentence, that doesn't take very much intelligence, right? Right. Uh, if your idea of 
transportation issues is four wheels bad, two wheels good. That you know that that doesn't require much intelligence. That, that's you know, you know it, it's a one sentence formula for redesigning our streets and uh, you know woke uh, racialized education is a one sentence explanation for everything you have to do in government. Uh, that's totally devoid of nuance. It's, it's, it's in fact totally pre-modern. It junks basically everything that Western civilization has taught us about both the need for virtue and, and the need for good government. Well, you know, a lot of the uh, cry of liberty, at least in Europe, let's say in the French Revolution, was aimed at both monarchies, but also at the Catholic Church. Yeah. And is it's ironic, isn't it, that the, the same faith that sort of created the philosophical, theological groundwork for the kind of liberty we espouse, their view was that the Catholic Church stood in the way of liberty. How do you, how do you well, sort that out? We're talking about France. Of course, and, and and France is where modernism first arrived. Important as early as the 17th century, the uh, you know many of the greatest thinkers were uh, were atheists or non-believers, and of course they're in a society which doesn't tolerate that, and so they learn to suppress their ideas or to write between the lines. And by the, you know, by the period just before the revolution, the educated class is, uh, you know, personally composed of mostly of non-believers. So, you know, don't blame Catholicism on the French Revolution. Blame its absence more than anything. And, and, and you know, and, and the the return of the monarchy in 1815 is associated with the revival of religion. And indeed, the the entire Romantic movement, which is a rebellion against the arid rationalism uh, which inspired the revolution, is is profoundly, importantly religious. So, uh, you know, Chateaubriand in the preface of uh, the genius of Christianism said, I walked into a cathedral and I wept. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, we have great difficulty often understanding earlier writings, right? And, and so we think, oh, okay, Chateaubriand, right, you know, like, I hope you had a handkerchief. <laughs> but but that, that expression was absolutely revolutionary at the time, right? I mean, the idea that our deepest feelings were connected to the idea of religion, which had been scoffed at by arid 18th century rationalism, an entirely revolutionary thought. And so, you know, the Romantic Rebellion, as a rebellion against rationalism of the 18th century, also represents a return to religion. And and, uh, and we've kind of forgotten that, or it's been blurred over. We think about the Romantic movement, we think about Byron or Shelley, who was a complete atheist. Um, you know, but, but more importantly, there's a, a different kind of romantic rebellion. Think, for example, of um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame de Paris. You pick up the book, and the first hundred pages is full of a description of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Yeah, yes. And, you know, and people are reading that and they're thinking to themselves, you know, okay. When's the story start? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but if you put yourself in the mindset of people reading it in the early 19th century, what uh, Hugo is saying is there's this great church in the center of Paris. It's been desecrated by Robespierre. Look at it. It's important. A simple idea like that is a revolution. 
Okay. And, Powerful. and we don't understand that unless we put ourselves in the mindset of the 18th century rationalist. So, uh, you know, and, and my long-winded answer to your question is the revolution reflected more than anything the absence of, of Catholicism. Well, that's, but, that kind of stopped me in my tracks. Tracks, Frank. Thanks. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I'll, 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 you know, it's more complicated than that. I mean, um, one of my great heroes in years two is Charles Peggy, who writes around the year 1900. And uh, Peggy is from a peasant stock, but very intelligent. Um, he is a Dreyfusar. He, he, he supports Alfred Dreyfus. And then he has a return to religion. He never quite becomes baptized or Catholic, but he becomes anti-anti-Catholic. The Catholic Church is under attack. He despises the people who attack the Church. When he begins to write along that vein, the the anti-Dreyfusard right approaches him. They want to say, oh, well, you're one of us now, aren't you? You're a right-winger. And, and, and Peggy writes a book in which he says, it's called Notre Jeunesse, our youth, in which he says, no, I renounce nothing. Uh, I adhere to the values of the French Revolution, namely the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and I respect religion. And the challenge for us today is, I think, to be like Peggy, to respect good things that came out of the 18th century and good things that came out of the reaction to its excesses. In other words, don't use the terror to refute the revolution. Right. Um, the terror, you know, it's, a, it's amazing how the terror is submerged from French history in a way. I mean, there are there are some people who've gone, you know, Marxists who've gone out and said, "Yes, yes, we like, we support Robespierre," um, but mostly it's a matter of silence. I think the French would like to say, and you know, De Gaulle would be part of this. The French would like to say, "Look, you know, there are good things that happened, and and you know, and which we value, and we're not going to talk about where it went wrong." You know, it, it all begins with the tennis court oath in 1789, yes. right, where the, the, um, the third estate says, we're the nation, we're going to govern. And within three months, they had abolished slavery and all feudal privileges. Okay, you know. That, you know. That's moving pretty fast. Yeah, it's, uh, they, you know, they, they were inspired by some good ideas. And you can see why, in England at the time, people like Wordsworth are swept away by this idea. It takes a long time before they, with Burke, realize that within this, the revolution contains the germs of its own destruction. Um, um, Yet the American Revolution uh, was over a, a decade before the French. Yeah. And the American Revolution, you know, you see when you read history books uh, about the development of the West and so forth, I mean, everybody kind of bows down and kisses, you know, the feet of the the original uh, French revolutionaries of 1789. Yet you don't see that kind of almost... uh, awe uh, for the great American patriots. It's like well, it, number, it's like we did it too easily or something. Right. Well, there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, you're talking about reactions to the French and American revolutions in our lifetime. And, and um, one reason for the... There are several reasons for the preference for the French Revolution. One is, the French are pretty good propagandists. Oh, they're great. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it, De Gaulle didn't even mention that the Americans took Paris. 
when he took over in World War II. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, that's the second part of this. The second part is sheer anti-Americanism. Yeah. So what you know what you what what uh, well-thinking people fifty, sixty years ago didn't want to do was to say, "Oh, the American Revolution was the source of all of this," because they did not like America, right? And um, and and as well, there was a literature that said, well, you know, forget seventeen seventy-six. The creation of America was in seventeen eighty-seven. And that was a conservative constitution. Um, and, you know, indeed, the the early writers on this, you know, early you know historians after Marx are profoundly influenced by Marx, and um, kind of the received interpretation for many people. About the American Revolution and 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 the creation of the Republic in 1787, is well, you know, th- this was a matter of class conflict, and what happened in 1787 was a financial class dispossessed an agrarian class, just as Marx would have predicted. So there, you know, there, there was a Marxist or a Marxist slant on on the American Revolution, which again made it unpopular with well-thinking people 50, 60 years ago. So we're going to take a short break, Frank, and when we come back, I'd like us to talk about more about this difference between the Declaration and the Constitution and how the Declaration, uh, as, Ma- as you said, Madison put it, actually addressed how do you deal with human nature in government. So we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Back with Frank Buckley, and I want to turn toward the specific idea of the book he's working on, and that is the origins of liberalism. And, you know, Frank, you told me the other day that you see a lot of this coming out of the age of chivalry. How is that possible? Well, liberalism has been around for a while, and the anti-liberals who say they don't like it will focus on one narrow definition of liberalism, and, and, and forget about everything else, uh, what they focus upon is a liberalism of individual rights derived from people like John Locke. And that kind of liberalism has overlapped its bounds in many respects. Marianne Glendon wrote about this in a book called Rights Talk. She talked about how uh, other people, Charles Taylor, have made the same point. They talked about how people insisting upon the respect for their own individual rights forget that we also have obligations to society at large and to the common good. And and so the the anti-liberals who are really anti-Lockians say, you know, we're we're forgetting our our general obligations to to promote the, the common good. Now, what I want to say is that liberalism as an idea actually predates all of that. And perhaps I can tell a little story. Please do. I'm so I'm I'm in a uh, a public school taught by nuns in Canada, which is possible. And the town is almost entirely French Canadian, with one exception, which would be moi. And the teacher, I was like grade three or something, tells us stories about history. And the story she tells us is about Joan of Arc being burnt by the English. And, uh, you know, and, and that's fine. But then afterwards she takes me aside and she worries that I might have been upset at the story because after all I'm English and, you know, it was my guys who, who burned Joan of Arc. And she wanted to say, well, no, 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 you, you shouldn't take it that way. What you should think of is the following. Had the English not been driven from France, then France, like England, might have turned Protestant, in which case we'd all be Protestant, and, and you will agree that would have been a terrible thing, and of mm. course I nodded my head, I'm, you know, I'm nine years of age, right. it's fine, um, and I want to say her instinct 
to look after my feelings was was liberal. And indeed, she was very much a model of liberalism. The, the town itself was, I say French-Canadian, it was also importantly very Métis. I mean, you know, a lot of the kids were, you know, descendants from French-Canadian fur trappers and native Cree Indians. And that didn't matter to anybody in the village. I mean, we, we didn't notice that, and, and certainly it wasn't noticed by the nuns. And so by what we would call liberalism today, she was that nun, or the nuns, were far more liberal than pretty much anybody else around. Yeah. Okay? And I tell you, um, it was from them, those holy ladies, that I learned liberalism. Ah. They didn't get it from Locke. They didn't get it from, <laughs> from, get it from Locke. Us. I love that. Yeah. They didn't get it from television. They, you know, they had none of that stuff. Um, they were simply trying to to uh, be good Catholics and to be as much as one can to be perfect. Um, and so thinking about that, I said, well, you know, if that was a kind of liberalism. It didn't come from Locke. So what else is there uh, now, you, you mentioned chivalry, so when you read the accounts of chivalry, uh, not all of which have the added advantage of being true, but they present a model of what life would be like lived according to the highest dictates of honor and glory. And, and you know, they include stories like the story of the Black Prince of Clutchy. You know that story? Uh, the, the Black Prince leads a raid of English um, in around 1360 in France, and he's, they're cut off by a French army three times their size. And the English defeat the French. You know, the bowmen do their number again. And the King of France is captured. And the Black Prince serves dinner for the captured King and his court. I I don't think I'm going to like the end of this story, but go ahead. <laughs> well, no, well um, the, the point is the Black Prince does not sit down to dinner with the King of France, whom he's captured. He serves them as a waiter. Uh, really? And talks about how honorable they fought and how much glory the French King Well, that won. went just the opposite direction I thought it was going, Frank. Yeah, no, yeah, so... That's a model of chivalry, of magnanimity. I mean, magnanimity is a classic virtue of chivalry. Okay? That descended to our day becomes the model of what an officer and a gentleman should be. Right? Something that's well understood by classic modern generals like Patton. Um, you know, it's funny you should... In fact, in fact, in the Code of Military Justice, the standard is, uh, it used to be officially now, implicitly, is you have to behave like an officer and a gentleman. And a gentleman will behave with courtesy. Now... Okay, Frank, I'm going to interrupt. i got to interrupt. Yeah. The year is 1969. I'm at the University of Texas. Everything's crazy, Vietnam. The most liberal professor or considered on campus was a guy named Larry Caroline. I took his class on, uh, I think it was on Liberty, actually. And we met at different people's houses. He had huge long hair, and everybody sat in a circle. I had, during this class, I had walked the aisle of a Baptist church in Fort Worth and become a Christian. Even though I grew up Presbyterian, I had I had a conversion experience. So I go to class, and Dr. Caroline says... <laughs> you gave up being a what? Presbyterian to become a Christian. Uh, okay, go on. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, you know, evangelical <laughs> conversion. So okay. I go to class... Dr. Caroline says, well, did anybody have anything interesting happen this weekend? Bear in mind, the whole class is liberal, and he's the most. Mm-hmm. I said, well, yeah, I uh, walked the Isle of Baptist Church and became a Christian. And he looked at me and said, good for you. Oh. 
you made a choice. Yeah. The rest, the yeah. class was like dazzled with that response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Um, I wanted to say something else about the requirements of being an officer and a gentleman, how antiquated that sounds. But it's in the code of military justice. And if you're, if you're not like that, you get booted in the service. Right? And, and those, you know, feelings are inculcated in our officer corps. In the first Iraq war, you'll recall that we didn't take out Saddam Hussein. What we had done was we had utterly destroyed the Iraqi army. There was a highway where our A-10 warthogs had destroyed every form of life. It was just littered with tanks, dead tanks, and dead people. And Colin Powell stopped the advance. He was asked afterwards, well, why didn't you go to Baghdad? And he said there was no military reason to do it. Hmm. He said the Iraqi army, as such, no longer existed. To continue to Baghdad would not have been chivalrous. The word that was still there is also in the Geneva Convention. The Geneva Convention, applied by the U.S. Supreme Court 15 years back, um, set aside parts of the Bush foreign policy with respect to dealing with insurgents in the Middle East um, on the basis of what are were really norms formed in the age of chivalry with respect to how you treat your prisoners. Right? We have a line as to what chivalrous behavior means in the law of war which is traced back to the 14th century. The 14th, the, the age of chivalry also gave us, by the way, the idea of courtly love. And people who were surprised by the Me Too movement of five, six years back were people who had simply forgotten what the dictates of the, of courtly love were. I mean, it wasn't exactly a prim code in some respects. It was very forgiving of adultery. But it also demanded that men behave in a way very different from the way that the Me Too movement had complained of in in men. So, you know, these were liberal ideas formed six, seven hundred years back. That was liberalism, too. And so liberalism is as much, is virtue-based in the way you're describing it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, its its ideals are under attack. Um, another other prominent examples of liberalism are things you can read about in the Jesuit relations of the 17th century, where the Jesuits came to America and to Canada uh, to found missions, right to save souls. Or in the um, the Jesuit Republic created in Paraguay in the mid-18th century, right, which was portrayed in the film The Mission, which was a native democratic republic suppressed only when the Jesuits were suppressed in Europe. These are examples of liberalism. Again, they have nothing to do with Locke, they have more to do with the instinct of benevolence, that, that you know, the, the desire to make a gift that, for example, animated the nun who apologized to me about Joan of Arc. Um, you know, that, that's fundamental. And the people who object to that curiously have aligned themselves to the economists who see everything in terms of naked self-interest, right? The Adam Smith of the Wealth of Nations is also the person who explains life to the left that sees actions as motivated not at all by benevolence so much as by responses to economic calculation. Um, it was benevolence that brought the missionaries to St. 
Saint Marie amongst the Hurons in northern Ontario, or the Jesuits to Paraguay, or, or to that nun who tried to uh, assuage my feelings about uh, Joan of Arc and so on. There, there's an instinct of benevolence, which is the foundation of virtue. Many people have thought along the line, along the way, and and uh, and, and which one gives too little credit to. You see, if everything is to be, if, if all justice is to be de- dispensed with by the state, that doesn't leave room for individual virtue. Right? In a way, right. it's it's the triumph of the idea of justice, which, and I'm against justice in some way. At least I'm against everything being justice. Do you do you remember? Civilization, the TV series with Kenneth Clark. Oh yes, it's it was totally inspiring for me, my life. Well, when Kenneth Clark talked about the 19th century, he said something very different happened here. He said, if you had asked people in previous of my programs what the most important thing is, they would have said different things. The Black Prince might have said uh, magnanimity. Uh, the Princess de Cleve might have said honor. Frederick Schiller might have said beauty, but in the 19th century, they discovered kindness. They would have said the most important thing is kindness. And Clark said that's the most important thing today in 1969. He said, if you ask anything, anyone, how should you live? What's the most important thing to you? They would have said kindness. But today they wouldn't do that. Today they would say justice. And what that means is things like racial reckonings, you know, revolutions in society, it's it's the virtue of the state, um, right? And the individual virtue of virtuous, benevolent people doesn't count. Um, so justice has expanded to take over all of the other virtues and has absolved us from our own private virtue. We don't need virtue. We just need to be on the right side with respect to political justice. Uh, yeah, we and, just and, need, and yeah. That has made this age shoddy, tardy, and inhuman. In a certain way, we, we wait for our moral cues to, from the government. Yeah. You know, we let the government... Yeah, we, we, we personally are absolved. It's, you know, let the state get it right, and that absolves us from uh, any moral responsibility apart from supporting that state. But the, how do you see that kind of liberalism then incorporated in our founding? Well, it's wholly inconsistent with our founding and with the idea of Lockean rights, which are based on individual rights. Um, you know, um, so I'll say that for Lockean liberalism, it had that going for it. It missed a lot of things uh, about which the anti-liberals complain, but at least we didn't end up with an all-pervasive totalitarian state. And... Uh, how much that has cheapened us. Well, yeah, and it certainly has. And uh, the where do you find pockets of liberalism when you survey the culture of true liberalism? Well, you know, the kind of liberalism I'm describing is one which is based upon individual virtue, which you'll find, you know, all over the place amongst people typically who are not uh, trying to derive all their ideas from John Locke or from some ideologue. It's just the liberalism of kind, decent, benevolent people. That, that certainly exists. Uh, I'm inclined to think there's much less of that today than there was 50 years back and that um, we've cut ourselves off from other people and become lonely, and that has been that has eliminated opportunities to show that kind of benevolence. Right? When we lose, you know, I, I think that. Let's talk about that for just a second. We have done that. I was just thinking the other day. I was looking down my street, and I thought, you know, I've lived here nearly two years now. I don't know my neighbors really. I mean, I know their names, say hi to them. Uh, 
but I wish I did know them. But there's well, no sort of modernity. setting where that yeah. happens. That's modernity. That's what happens when we're highly mobile. Um, you know, there, 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 are, there are many aspects to what people have called the malaise of, of modernity, and one of them is, is alienation and anonymity. The anonymity comes when you move to a new community, and you know, and and you don't meet your neighbors. And it, it used to be that you would quickly meet your neighbors when you moved because you depend upon them for right. certain things. Um, but we don't depend on neighbors so much. If there were something to be fixed 200 years back, you might help ask a neighbor to help. Now you you call in a workman. And, uh, you know, so we depend less on people. If you just stay in the same place, your neighbors will be known to you, and that will police you to some extent. I did some uh, econometric work on divorce rates and bankruptcy, and what I discovered was it was the highly mobile states where you have more divorce and more bankruptcy because you're not policed by what other people think about you because nobody knows you, right? So it was the, the new Gingriches who got divorced, for example, and not the Tip O'Neills in Massachusetts. Good man. Would you think that, uh, has social media helped loneliness or made it worse? Um, well, both, I guess. I mean, it is great to stay connected to people whom otherwise you wouldn't see. I mean, that's, that is a form of connection. Um, it's also, however, anonymous to the extent that all they see of you is what you're posting. It can't replicate the kind of connection you get when you really meet somebody. I mean, it's, 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 it's a faces matter. It's important to see faces. Faces reflect what people are thinking and how they're feeling. They you certainly do. You, you, you don't, you don't, you don't get that, you know, on Facebook. So, um, on, it's both helped and hurt. You, you know what really bugs me on Facebook? is when people put up pictures of their family and then list so-and-so went to Harvard, so-and-so went to the West Point, so, so-and-so went yeah. to MIT, and every child in the family has, like, gone to the best school in the country. I know, I know. And I just no. want to go, oh, I'm just horrible father. <laughs> uh, no, it's, uh, I hate that. You know, uh, and, and of course, they'll always have the bumper sticker in their car of the college their, their kid went to. So, you know, there'll be a bumper sticker for Harvard, and what it says essentially is, my kid went to Harvard, too bad for yours. Yeah, you that's know, what it feels uh, like. It's posting. It's, it's, it's really, um, you know, if you met somebody on the street who introduced himself the way they do on Facebook, you'd think, what a total jerk. Yes. Right? And and uh, But, you know, that kind of anonymity permits us to do things which are basically disgraceful, like boasting, which otherwise we wouldn't do. You know, yeah. you, you, you get this also, maybe I get it less than I used to, the boasting Christmas card. You know, oh, yeah, you get those, too. Absolutely, yeah. you get those. Yeah, and, and, you know, sometimes they're really charming. I mean, people are not boasting. They're just talking about life events and stuff like that. And some, but sometimes it's, it's sheer boasting. I went here, I went there, I would do, you know, give me a break. What the hell is this? Is Christmas? <laughs> it's even worse than Easter, right? Yeah, yeah. So how far along are you in your book, and when do you expect to send it off to the publisher? Uh, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm more than halfway through, but I just want to sit back and do a lot of reading about it. So I don't think I'll give it to the publisher anytime soon. Well, of course, I'm always here if you need a reader. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's... Uh, it's fascinating to look at how things change over history. I mean, when um, 
when Kenneth Clark talked about the rise of kindness in the 19th century, what he was talking about was the devastation wrought in the inner cities of England, in the east end of London, as described by Friedrich Engels, and in the same year by Disraeli in Sybil. And, and, and people, or the novels of Dickens in between Oliver Twist and Hard Times, all of that amounted to the invention of kindness and the creation of a new kind of liberalism, the modern liberalism, of which, you know, which tried to take care of people left behind. And all of that is, all of those were good things. So, you know, understanding what liberalism means involves looking at things that are happening below the level of law school uh, articles, you know, at the level of what ordinary people are thinking. And ordinary, and, you know, and, and, and I'd rely on their instincts more than I would on any, uh, any law review article. The, uh, and by the way, I just want you to know how glad I am that you uh, have come through some medical challenges uh, and yeah. you're in good shape. Yeah, so you know we're. Uh, and you are such a, a you are such a you are such a. Don't you know? I'm not going to say anything about it. I don't. You know, I'll just. I'm not going to mention it. Stiff upper lip. Where'd you get the stiff upper lip from? Is that your Canadian background? No, I I, I don't know. Um, I think I was raised to think that really nothing bad is going to happen to me. And so, apropos of illness, I've thought, well, you know, if from time to time I have to see a doctor, I'm still happy. Well, I, as your friend, am happy too. And uh, I want our listeners to know that uh, Frank Buckley is in good shape and he will be back with us in the near future. And Frank, let me just say I appreciate the time you've given uh, over the years to uh, educating us here on Church and Culture. Well, great. By the way, my mother used to describe people who were vigorous. She said they were full of pith and vinegar. Well, you are. You got that. You got that in spades. So uh, I want to thank you, Frank, again, and I want to thank all of the listeners, and I will be back on this day at this time next week. If you have any comments or questions about church and culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.